This is a Stimulus Network podcast. Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, preserved like Otzi the Iceman with all of my tattoos intact. And I am Leah Richards, dredged from the acid environment of a bog, perfectly preserved. Is that due to the acid, or...? It's an anaerobic environment. There's not a lot of decay goes on there. Sounds great for, like, mud facials, then. You'd think, but very important for carbon storage. Why are we these blasts from the past, you might wonder? Well, chatting about ancient tattoos in the last episode got me thinking. What's happening in history and in the past? So we went back over some of the history stories from Eureka Alert and have found a few anthropological, archaeological, kind of just human history stories to explore and see what got us to where we are today. I just love what's happening in the past as if it's not already happened. That mixing of tenses is really something. Spoilers for Avengers Endgame. Having heard a lot about time travel in the last 48 hours and multiverse stuff, I really can't say if the past has happened yet or not. Oh god, did you go looking up explanations for how that didn't create huge paradoxes and stuff? Only if you mean people arguing about how big the paradox is. Marvel have long since established that they've got a multiverse thing going on and that they're branching paths, so I don't know why anyone, especially someone associated with the company, would turn around and go, no, it's not not anything to do with that. I did find one explanation where the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles factor into it, so... More on mind-bending multiverses some other time, but for right now, let's stick to what we know, like humanity, and people, and faces. Do we really know anybody? I mean, we've both got faces, we can see them on each other right now, so that's a start, I suppose. And might it be that our faces evolved the way they are, because they're being used as faces? Research from the University of York suggests perhaps. There's a paragraph here, quite close to the opening, that describes humans as large-brained, short-faced hominins. Our faces are different from other now-extinct hominins, such as Neanderthals, our closest living relatives, like bonobos and chimpanzees. But how and why did the human face evolve this way? And I've been called many things in my life. I don't know if I've ever been called large-brained yet short-faced. I've got quite a big face. Yeah, I think as humans go, yours is quite long. It's not quite as long as, say, a gorilla's. You haven't got that forward-projecting snout situation. No one's going to try to deny you've got a Roman nose. Not quite a forward-projecting snout, but not far off. That's the point. In comparison to our near relations, we've got quite short faces as a species. Well, new research published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, authored by a team of international experts, including those from the University of York, says that the changes that have led to the human face that we have today can be found back in ancient anatomy and how that's borne out into modern anatomy, and they conclude that social communication has been somewhat overlooked as a factor underlying the modern human facial form that our faces should be seen as the result of a combination of biomechanical, physiological, and social influences. So they're not saying that the human face is entirely developed the way it has because of social communication, but that that is a strong influencing factor. The ability to communicate very effectively what we're feeling to one another by waggling your eyebrows a la Roger Moore is a useful skill. 
one that doesn't work so well on the podcast, but if you can hear them rustling, then that is my efforts at communication via the medium of eyebrow. And social factors, as well as just communication, will change the shape of a face and what it is that we're trying to do with the face. Like, seeing things, and smelling things, and especially eating things. Professor O'Higgins says that softer modern diets and industrialized societies may mean that the human face continues to decrease in size. There are limits on how much of the face that can change, for example breathing requires a sufficiently large nasal cavity, but within those limits the evolution of the human face is likely to continue as long as our species survives. I would suggest though, as faces are quite a central part of things like how we as a species find mates to breed with, that sexual selection is going to come in at some point, and I mean, is there a specialist fetish community for small-faced people? I think that by asking the question of does somebody have a thing for this... Quantum fetish mechanics dictates that it is. I know. <laughs> I walked right into that. I'm a fool. Nonetheless, I would say that having to have a sufficiently large nasal capacity to breathe is not the only limiting factor in play. No, but we've seen what that does to dogs. Again, we're choosing our own mates rather than being paired up by a higher power. I've actually spent a lot of time looking at a gorilla skeleton due to having worked in a science museum. They had a cast of one. And the crest on the top of the skull there, that is just for strapping jaw muscles to and having more chewing power, does lend a lot to the size of the head and the size of the face thereupon. So, yeah, having a softer, smaller diet, needing smaller, softer jaw muscles. I don't know if... That's going to accelerate now that people are getting really into their food replacement smoothies and like your Huel and your Soylent kind of thing. <laughs> it might just be a bunch of soft, doughy-faced programmer boys in Silicon Valley who have yeah. lost the ability to chew. California tech bros' jaws are going to disappear. Like English royalty. Oh my goodness. The peasants are out there chewing gravel and grit. <laughs> Yet to discover the spoon, and royalty have entirely disappeared inside their own foie gras-affected chins. Is that where that came from, historically speaking? No, that's just inbreeding. Just three or four families interbreeding across the whole of Europe for 500 years? It's no wonder they all started losing their minds. Congratulations on the royal baby to Harry and Meghan, by the way. Hey, she's new blood. Well, speaking of the threat of inbreeding and the need for a diversified gene pool, Research in another story from Case Western Reserve University is looking at the evolution of humans and our diversification as a species, how we got into bipedalism as a whole and how far that can carry us and take us to new communities and let us spread out as a species. They find that there's more evidence that that happened sooner due to what looks like grit and gravel, but apparently it's an essential part of being up on both legs. I do enjoy how you phrased bipedalism as if it's, you know, a lifestyle choice. Like, oh, I'm becoming vegan now, or I'm taking up CrossFit, or, you know? Seeing as there was a thing last year about, quote, raw water lifestyle and freeganism living off literal garbage, I do not doubt that there is a sect of people out there who are trying to return to their quadrupedal roots. Well, good luck to them. Too late, we've got tailbones now! So, this is based on an analysis of a 4.5 million year old fragmentary skeleton of an Ardipithecus ramidus discovered in the Afar regional state of Ethiopia. This is an older ancestor than Australopithecus, 
and they had assumed that it would be really just super bad at walking around on two legs, like barely able to do it, like an armadillo. Hmm. Front legs off the floor, back still mostly parallel to the ground. But a closer analysis of this particular individual's toe bone suggests they might have been better at it than we thought. The comparison of just something like an armadillo where it's levered off the floor towards the front and just kind of shuffling around a little bit. It's doing a wheelie. <laughs> As a species, this is where we hit upon the wheelie formation of yeah. ankles and toes that you need to mm-hmm. get upright. Mm-hmm. According to this press release, previous studies of other Ardipithecus fossils show that it was capable of terrestrial bipedalism as well as being able to clamber in trees, but lacked the, quote, anatomical specializations seen in the Gona fossil examined by Simpson. But that this new analysis, published in the Journal of Human Evolution, indicates that they were much more likely to be up on their legs for longer periods, as well as taking to the trees when needed. But seeing as other extant relations of ours, many primates do get up on two legs at a time, then there's a lot of comparison that you can have of different primate body types and how we can trace that back to a quadrupedal form. And it does seem that the toes are very important to this. Specifically, apparently, the joints between the arch of the foot and the big toe in this fossil were used to reconstruct the range of motion of the whole foot. While no joint cartilage remains for the Ardipithecus fossil, the surface of the bone has a characteristic texture which shows where it would have once been covered in cartilage. And I guess once you've thumbed over this bone and found exactly where the cartilage would strap on, you can start working your way backwards until you have enough evidence, according to Scott W. Simpson, to push off in a human-like manner and that the fossil shows primitive tree-climbing physical characteristics that also feature the human-like use of a foot for upright walking. And while other living primates like chimpanzees walk in a kind of bow-legged fashion, where their knees spread out past the ankles, Ardipithecus has a much more human-like formation keeping the knees above the ankle. What this means for me and my knees today, I'm not quite sure. They've been a bit achy lately, but that could also just be old age setting in, and Ardipithecus has still got me beat on that by a couple of million years. This research has also been approached in a different angle, in a different journal, by a different batch of authors, with researchers from New York University looking at this as the case for human ancestors being grounded and not being entirely tree dwellers. They say that this is an important transition for the Ardipithecus fossil from being a quadrupedal, tree-wrangling kind of thing to being on the ground on two feet. The Ardipithecus big toe is still offset in the manner of a human thumb or chimpanzee and gorilla big toes, so it can still be used to grasp branches, but it's better at walking on the ground than our modern-day closest living relatives. And one of the authors for this, Thomas Prang, a doctoral candidate from New York University's Department of Anthropology, does note at the end that Humans are part of the natural world and our locomotor adaptation, that is, walking on two legs, cannot be understood outside of its natural evolutionary context. Large-scale evolutionary changes do not seem to happen spontaneously, instead they are rooted in the deeper histories revealed by the study of the fossil record. So congrats to these two teams to coming at the same fossil in two different directions and figuring out exactly when people get up on both feet and start milling about. Speaking of walkouts... In a piece of news, which probably a lot of people will think Oh, really? Who could possibly have imagined that that was the case? Better labour practices could improve archaeological output. I'm not sure there's much that better labour practices couldn't improve, honestly. This just in. Being good to your staff and treating them like human beings leads to good results. Is a good thing to do. 
Now, archaeological science doesn't exactly have the best track record of treating workers like human beings and deserving of any kind of kindness or respect or humility. Or indeed, kind of morally, in general, archaeology's got some skeletons in its closet and proudly displayed in its national museums. This recently published paper from Alison Mickle, an archaeologist at Lehigh University, does indeed note the history of archaeological excavation has been a very hierarchical structure, deeply entangled with Western colonial and imperial pursuits, that excavations have been, and often still are, led by followers from the West, while dependent on the labour of scores of people from the local community to perform the manual labour of the dig. And on account of this is a bad way to be to other human beings, those local workers aren't doing their best work. Who could blame them? She does in fact say that the capitalist mode of production leads to workers experiencing a sense of powerlessness and an inability to fulfil the potential of their own skills, expertise and abilities, alienation in the Marxist sense. And she's done an analysis on the memoirs of two 19th century archaeologists, the Italian... Giovanni Battista Belzoni, known for work in Egypt, and Sir Austin Henry Layard, best known for work in Nimrud, a site about 20 miles south of Mosul in Iraq. And, yeah, paying very little to your workers leads to them treating the workers less important. Belzoni hardly paid his workers for long hours and hard, hard labour, and then complained when he went away for a week that they did hardly anything whilst he wasn't there. I can only assume because why would they do any work for someone who wasn't there to not pay them in the first place. By comparison, Layard's workers worked with him year by year by year, and he often hired the same team repeatedly for local digs, and some of those went on to publish their own papers and take a place in the local archaeological scene and contribute to the furthering of the understanding of their country's history. Treating people well goes a very long way to helping them in their life and career prospects and practices. And also actually communicating with other people gives you a lot of opportunities to like learn from them about, for example, the history you're trying to dig up. And Michael concludes this press release with a feeling that I'm sure is shared by many archaeology students and postdocs and everyone involved in the field when she says, This isn't charity work. If we want to have better archaeology, if we want to know more about the past, then we need to find ways to benefit from the knowledge that local people have been hiding for decades and decades and decades from us. So yeah, if you are in archaeology or anthropology or any kind of study that involves local and indigenous communities trying to understand their history, trying to work with them, trying to bring the world to them and them to the world, don't be a monster. Pay them properly. Talk to people. Be a human being. Maybe don't steal their artifacts away as well. That's um, that's a good one. Maybe don't wonder, hmm, why did they never write down their history when you know full well that they have a oral history and that you wiped out most of them like 500 years ago? And the ones you didn't, you forcibly re-educated. Oh, isn't colonialism fun? That one was pretty bleak. Have you got any better news? Don't know about good news, but you can put this one in the pile of no really kind of science research the Field Museum has found that a key part to human society and the survival of empires and... General stability of communities. Is beer. Having food, drink, and mind-altering substances available in moderate quantities for most people. 
Honestly, don't you just love how human beings always want to get off their faces on something? It's one of the rare constants across all communities of all types of humans across all the corners of the planet. They just want to get hammered. Take, for example, the Wari Empire, who a thousand years ago stretched across Peru. At their height, the Wari Empire covered an area the size of the eastern seaboard of the US, from New York City to Jacksonville, Florida. It lasted for 500 years, from 600 to 1100 AD, before eventually giving rise to the Inca. That's a long time, apparently, for an empire to remain intact, and archaeologists are studying remnants of the Wari culture to see what kept it ticking. A new study has figured out what might have been an important factor. A quote here from Ryan Williams, who is Associate Curator and Head of Anthropology at the Field Museum and lead author of this new study in the Sustainability Journal. This study helps us understand how beer fed the creation of complex political organizations. We were able to apply new technologies to capture information about how ancient beer was produced and what it meant to societies in the past. And I've heard about lots of things stabilizing an empire. I've heard of chariot racing. I've heard of regular execution of tyrants and dictators. I've never heard of beer being the whole thing that keeps the organization afloat. I mean, it makes sense to me. Much of Western civilization has run on beer for much of Western civilization. Ah, yes, because there's that line between beer Europe, wine Europe, and vodka Europe. Yeah, not to mention all the brewery staff who weren't dying of cholera during that epidemic. If you could drink beer, you didn't have to drink the dirty water. Now, the analysis that went into this study was looking at the ceramic beer vessels from Cerro Baul, which were scanned with, amongst many things, shooting a laser at a shard of a beer vessel to remove a tiny bit of material, and then heated that into dust, and then that was used to break down the molecules that were inside and find out what it was made up, which is a very long way and very fancy way of describing we smashed it to bits to see what it was made of. But then most of science is smashing things to bits to see what it's made of. They do note that the significance of the beer for maintaining worry society wasn't just the getting drunk part, but that because this particular drink didn't have a very long shelf life, you had to come into the city to drink it, so they'd have a festival and everyone would party and get to know each other, and it's a culturally significant shared experience, which is things we could do with reaching out for, really. Have a party, have a brew. I can get behind that. Find common ground. Share some experiences with the humans you'd share space with. If you can walk around and see each other's faces in large numbers of people, then I think that's what a society is. I do like the future development of this research, not just being figuring out what happened with the Wari Empire and more understanding there, but also that Chicago's Off-Color Brewery has released a beer based on this work, a pink ale infused with pepperberries, called the Wari Ale, being released in the Chicago area and bars in June. So... If you're living in Chicago and want to find out what kept a pre-Incan empire going all those years ago, then give it a go. Let us know how it tastes. Drink responsibly. But now it is time for us to use our refined and evolved faces to say goodbye to you using your own faces to listen to this. That is part of the face. No. To use the bits near to your face listening to this. If you've liked what we talk about and want to hear more people talking about more scientific stuff, then head over to Stimulus.network to find more science-ish podcasts, including Inside the Petri Dish, starring Alice Gray and Ty Aziz, The Cosmic Shed, The Spooktator, and For What It's Earth. And if you've enjoyed our work and want to lend us personally a little bit of support, you can make a donation to our Kofi. For contact, find us on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Eureka Nerdcast. On Facebook, it's just forward slash Eureka Nerd. Or drop us an email at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. 
but just before we use our human legs to walk over to the fridge and grab a chilled beer, here's a few more quick stories to tide you over until next time. Did you know that education may be the key to a healthier, wealthier American population? I don't see how that could possibly be the case. Is that because so many of the American population doesn't have access to healthcare or education? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, loot boxes in video games? Mm-hmm. And how they're basically gambling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Loot boxes are basically gambling. But until next time, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.